through the book readings this morning. So if you want to follow them, they'll be on the screen, but if you've brought your Bible with you, uh, you can follow it. Uh, so we, we'll be in Acts chapter 20 and Acts chapter 21. And uh, the background to um, these readings is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is um, going back to Jerusalem. And he's setting his face uh, to, to, to return to Jerusalem. But he knows that in doing that, there will be difficulties, hardships ahead, as he expresses in these readings. So Acts chapter 20, and reading from verse uh, 22. All right, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. And then from chapter 21, reading from verse 7, as he continues his journey to Jerusalem, and he stops off at different places to meet with believers, people who have known him well, who he has brought to the Lord, and those early fledgling churches as well. Chapter 21, verse 7, we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, We and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am not ready only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. One of the remarkable things that I have encountered um, when I've met people who uh, are persecuted for their faith is their incredible courage. And it's not a natural thing. I remember when I went to Lebanon, I had the privilege of sitting down at coffee time with this pastor from Aleppo, Syria. It had taken him 40 hours to come over the border. He had gone through numerous checkpoints. 
we just chatted about our families, like you do. And I just looked into his eyes, and I asked him, why have you come to meet with a group of leaders from Britain? And he said, I've come because you're praying for us. I've come because you're here. I asked him about his journey back. He said it would be 50-50 whether he'd get back alive. Where does that courage come from? It's not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. Sometimes we've experienced that when we're facing difficulties in our lives and we're despairing. And suddenly, we get courage from somewhere. Paul, as he sets his face to Jerusalem, knows that imprisonment and hardship await him. How does he know this? Well, it's probably common sense, but also the Holy Spirit has actually told him. You know, and that comes with some authority when the Holy Spirit says, actually, hardships await you in every city, Paul. And naturally speaking, humanly speaking, if we heard that kind of message, we'd be going, well, let's go somewhere else. But Paul, compelled by the Spirit, sets his face toward Jerusalem. It's interesting that if you read through the Gospels, there is a moment when Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. Don't know if that has any influence on Paul at all, but he, he's following in his master's footsteps in that sense. His overriding concern is not his personal safety or survival or well-being, but it's the gospel, the good news. He says, I, 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 all I want to do is finish the race, complete the task that God has given me, whether it's short or long. I want to bear witness to the gospel. And as he travels, there are tears wherever he goes because... The people who have experienced the love of Jesus through his ministry are meeting him again on his way back. And there's tearful farewells. There's this wonderful scene on the beach where the church kneels together, young and old, after they've tried to persuade him not to go. And so they just pray with him, the Lord's will be done. There's those telling words when he he says his farewell and he says, you will never see me again. It's an astonishing thing to say, isn't it? To hear someone say, you, you, you will never see me again. Now, I'd have put a little rider if I was Paul and saying, well, you will see me in heaven, <laughs> glory. But we don't have that recorded. But he knows that anyway. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm willing to go and die for Jesus. Again, in Caesarea, a prophet named Agabus acts out a prophecy It's a bit like some of the Old Testament prophets who who did strange things to convey God's word. You know, remember Ezekiel once shaved his head and his beard just to say, this is what's going to happen, guys. You're going to go into exile. Jeremiah smashed an earthen pot. Isaiah walked barefoot and naked for a time just to convey God's word to the people that, that they had turned against God and they would be marched out of their land in captivity Agabus takes Paul's belt off him, and he ties himself up and says, this is what awaits Paul in Jerusalem. And again, they plead with him not to go. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm not only ready to be bound, but to die for Jesus. What courage the Apostle Paul Displayed, but it's not a human thing. It's a supernatural thing. 
in North Korea, the secret church are are fiercely persecuted. They have to hide their faith from the authorities. The church in North Korea is truly an underground church, divided into thousands of small networks and cells. Most Christians hardly know any other Christians because it's too dangerous to know their names. Because if you get caught, you will be tortured and be forced to give up those names. The most visible proof of their faith is the possession of a Bible. Because it's illegal to own a Bible. Punishable by death. Probably nowhere in the world are so many copies of the Bible literally hidden underground. But in the midst of all that, the church is growing. I've heard a story recently of a middle-aged man who was arrested by the state police because they found a Bible in his home. Whether he'd not hidden it for any reason, but he had it in his home. He was taken into custody. He was terribly beaten. And the other prisoners who witnessed this beating have told how he said to them, I know that I am going to die here. Someone who's known him for some time, a Christian friend, said, when he came to faith, he made the decision that one day he would die for Christ. It's a decision every Christian makes in North Korea to be prepared to die for Jesus because that's what it costs to follow Jesus. He knew that one day he would be caught and one day he would stand and he asked for courage to be faithful to his Lord Jesus. He said, Jesus is my reward. He is my treasure. The kingdom of the Kims is limited. The kingdom of our Lord is eternal. Where does that courage come from? A pastor in prison for his faith in Eritrea recently wrote to his wife. His sentence had been extended to five and a half years, kept in one of these big container lorries that many of uh, the prisoners in Eritrea are kept in, those shipping containers. He wrote to his wife, God, by his holy will, has prolonged my sentence. I very much long for the day when I'll be reunited with you, with our children and with God's people. I love you, I love the children, and I would love to be set free to serve the Lord. But here, God has not only made me a sufferer for his name's sake, but also a prisoner of his indescribable love and grace. I am testing and experiencing the love and the care of the Lord every single day. When they first brought me in, I thought my work for the Lord was over. But the moment I entered the cell, one of the other prisoners called me, Pastor, you're very much needed in here. Everyone else is unsaved. My dear wife, the longer I stay here, the more I love my Savior. And I tell the other prisoners of his goodness and his grace. And he is enabling me to overcome the coldness and the longing in my heart for all of you. I love you more than I can say. Please help the children understand that I am here for Jesus. And there is a greater cause, the cause of the gospel. Where does the courage come from? It seems that when we need it the most, the Lord gives us it. 
Or maybe this morning you just need that courage and you need to ask the Lord for it. We're going to watch the final video in our series. And uh, if we can have that, Chris. tell you about one of the bravest men I ever met. He was a church pastor in Colombia and when I met him he travelled with his family to attend a gathering of pastors, all of whom had faced persecution from anti-Christian guerrilla forces. He, his wife and three children had travelled for five hours to attend this event, all five of them on the back of one motorbike. My wife and I had the chance to sit with him and listen to his story. He'd followed a calling, he believed, to plant a church in a small village. It was hard going, but soon Christians began to gather together in his house. He was to stop. There was to be no more meetings. In Colombia, the communist guerrillas do not like independent churches like this. They don't like it when people discover a living faith, when they change their allegiance from some local warlord to the Prince of Peace. So they try to close them down. The pastor obeyed this command, sort of. He actually carried on meeting with the Christians in secret, but the trouble was it wasn't quite secret enough. One day when he and his family were away from the village, he got a phone call. And the phone call simply said that the guerrillas were waiting for him and would be there when he got back. He knew what that meant. It meant that he would be shot. What did you do, we asked him. What could we do, he replied. We went back. So they returned to what he believed would be his death. On the edge of the village there was a roadblock. Nineteen guerrilla fighters were waiting for him. They told him to leave the bike. So they climbed off the bike and then they walked through the roadblock and back towards their house. And the guerrillas followed them at a distance. I could hear their footsteps, he said. They sounded like the footsteps of death. They got to the house and the pastor went into the room that he used as a study and he knelt down and he began to pray. And his son was outside and wanted to join him, but the pastor wouldn't let him because he truly believed that the guerrillas were going to shoot him through the window. He knelt there praying with all his heart and he could hear the guerrillas coming nearer and nearer. And then they just passed by. They kept on walking. He heard them pass his window and the footsteps fade into the distance. Something changed their minds. The power of prayer, perhaps, or the quiet courage and example of the man they'd come to kill. Anyway, we asked the pastor what his vision was now for the village. I want to build a church, he said. Don't you ever think of leaving, I asked. Oh no, he replied. I will not leave until Christ gives me the victory. In the spring of 57 AD, Paul returned to Jerusalem. He was aiming to return in time for the festival of Pentecost, but he actually had a few days over, so he, along with Luke and other members of his party, stayed in Caesarea, a city on the coast of the Mediterranean. And they actually stayed with Philip, one of the seven deacons, and someone who left Jerusalem many years before, during the first bout of persecution. While they're staying with Philip, they were visited by a man called Agabus. Agabus is a prophet. 
He's come up from Judea and he lets Paul know exactly what is lying in store for him if he decides to go on and complete this journey. What Agabus does is he takes off his belt and binds it around Paul and tells him that if he goes to Jerusalem, he will be imprisoned and handed over to the Romans. This is not the first time that Paul has heard this message. A week earlier he'd been in Tyre, where the local Christians had begged him not to go on. Everyone, it seems, knew what was going to happen. Agabus was a prophet, but perhaps he didn't need massive prophetic powers to know that Paul returning to Jerusalem was a high-risk strategy. This, after all, was a city where he once hunted Christians and imprisoned them. Now he had switched sides, and people tend not to forget that sort of thing. So they know what's going to happen. But here's the thing, Paul knows what's going to happen as well. Earlier in the journey, in his uh, farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, he told them that he too had heard from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, he said to them, that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. There in Caesarea, everyone begs him not to go on. And then in verse 13 of chapter 21, Paul says this, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's friends and colleagues have spent too many years with the old campaigner not to know that he's not going to change his mind. So they simply say, the Lord's will be done and prepare for the journey. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Paul ends in chains. He goes to Jerusalem, he meets opposition, a mob is raised against him, he's arrested, and mistaken, in fact, for a terrorist. There's a threat against his life, so he's taken back to Caesarea, only this time in chains, and he ends up staying there for two years. It's the start of what was probably his final imprisonment. And it all begins because Paul is ready to be bound and even to die in Jerusalem. Why? Why was he so determined to go to Jerusalem? We know he was taking a collection for the Jerusalem church. Certainly he wants to demonstrate unity with the churches elsewhere in the Roman Empire. But there would have been other ways to do that. I think in the end, the reason Paul went to Jerusalem was that he simply couldn't not go. He was under orders, impelled by the Spirit and by his own calling. And it was no good saying to him that he would be made a captive. He already was a captive. When he talks to the elders from Ephesus, he describes himself as a captive to the Spirit. The Spirit was telling him to go. So that was decided. What Paul knew was that chains and captivity do not mean defeat. On the contrary, as he wrote to the Corinthians, he knew he already had all the victory through Jesus Christ. What he could see ahead was the opportunity to tell others about it. That was his goal and his mission. His friends were worried that he would be captured, that he would be defeated. But in the Christian life, captivity is not defeat. Being abused, victimised, oppressed is not defeat. Poverty, humility is not defeat. In the Christian life, the only defeat is disobedience. That pastor in Colombia talked about Christ giving him the victory, but I think he was already a victor. I think that victory was won the moment he got back onto the bike and returned home because it showed the guerrillas that they could threaten him, they could even kill him, but they could never defeat him.
We won't watch it again, but we'll, we'll stop it there. I hope that uh, through this series and through the videos that, one, you've been challenged to pray for the persecuted church, um, that, two, that something of their experience has encouraged you and emboldened you where you are to live for Jesus. We don't face the same persecution that they face, but we face challenges in our lives. Challenges where the enemy would want to say that, how can God still be here and still love you because this has happened to you? It's how he operates. Imprisonment is not defeat, we heard on there. Poverty is not defeat. What the world thinks is a victory, how they can silence the church, never silences the church. The enemy's tactics always fail. He always overreaches himself because God works all things. All things. That means nothing is left out. All things for the good of those who love him. And maybe you need some courage this morning. I just want to assure you that the Lord is with you. Whatever you're facing, he is with you. He is everything you need. And he will see it through. And whatever might seem like defeat in our lives is not defeat. It's just part of that journey into the glorious, wonderful victory that Jesus has assured for us. So let's just pray together, shall we? And ask the band to come back. Father, we thank you for this journey that we've been on in these past eight weeks.